Today's reading is from John chapter 14, verses 15 to 31. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Before long the world will not see me any more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day you will realise that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things, and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away, and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not say much more to you, for the Prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. Well, I wonder, have you ever wondered what it would be like to travel back in time? Now, I'm sure I can't be the only person who's ever wondered this or asked that question. So if you would, if you could go back in time, to which point in history would you go back in time to? Which event would you like to witness firsthand? Now, perhaps you'd go back to August the 28th, 1963. You'd go to Washington, D.C., to see Martin Luther King deliver his famous I Have a Dream speech. Or perhaps you'd go back a little further to Prague in 1911 uh, to sit in on a lecture at Charles University by Albert Einstein. Or perhaps you'd go even further back than that to Egypt in 69 BC to sit in on the court of Cleopatra. Now, I don't know what you would choose, but there are also Christian versions, I think, of this thought experiment. So where would you go in Bible history back in time? Which event would you see? Now, I suppose the creation has to be a contender, doesn't it? Kind of see where it all began and what that was like. Or perhaps you'd be there to view the crossing of the Red Sea as Moses led the Israelites um, as the waters parted uh, to freedom away from their enslavers. But I guess if we're going to play the Christian version of this game, most would probably say that they would travel back in time to see Jesus's earthly ministry. I mean, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? To go and see Jesus there, to sit on the grass, listening with all the crowds as he delivers his Sermon on the Mount, uh, to see him get the better of the Pharisees as they kind of um, have the cut and thrust together as they, as they argue and debate, to watch him perform miracles, 
even to see him resurrected from the dead. I mean, just imagine what it would have been like, what it would have been like to be there and see those things firsthand. I'm sure many Christians would love to hop in a time machine, go back and see those events with their own eyes. And I wonder if behind that wish, there's a kind of assumption that what those people saw in those events firsthand, it, it was better for them than what we have now. We may be tempted to think, you know, if only I could see Jesus in the flesh, if only I'd been there, you know, maybe my Christian life would feel that much more energy because it would seem so much more real. Maybe I'd feel more strengthened to carry on living the Christian life, even when things get hard, having had those experiences, having been there and seeing them in the flesh. Well, the truth is that it wouldn't have been better being there then. It wouldn't have been better. In fact, today's reading in John's Gospel shows us that what Christians have now is an even a, a greater privilege than what the disciples had before the resurrection, being with Jesus. And so we need to hear Jesus's words in John 14 to us today because they will strengthen us and they will encourage us and assure us that we have all that we need um, to live the Christian life today. In fact, we have a really rich privilege. So we're going to look at three things this morning. Firstly, we're going to see life in the spirit. Secondly, love for the sun. And thirdly, lessons for the world. So firstly then, life in the spirit. Well, keep your Bible open, by the way, back in John 14. If you've got it closed, do reopen it. We're in this section in John's Gospel where Jesus is about to leave his disciples. It's right towards the end of his life. It's his final night, actually, before he is to be betrayed. And these chapters, more than in any of the other Gospels, these accounts of Jesus's life, go into detail of Jesus's last words to his disciples. It, this is his farewell to them before he leaves. And all of this talk of Jesus going away, no doubt, will have been distressing to the disciples. It would have been disconcerting. I mean, think about it. They'd spent three roller coaster years with this man. They'd lived with him. They'd traveled with him. They'd done um, extraordinary things on the road with Jesus. And Jesus had deeply invested himself in his disciples. And they knew and believed him to be the Messiah, the promised king, not just of Israel, but of the whole world. And yet here he was telling them, that he was going to leave them. Now it's clear that they are confused and upset and perhaps even feeling a sense of abandonment from Jesus. You see, Jesus has to tell them twice, do not let your hearts be troubled. He says that in verse one of this chapter, which we looked at last week. And again in this passage in verse 27, where he also adds, do not be afraid. Clearly they were afraid. But Jesus, though he is leaving them, has no intention of abandoning them. And these words of Jesus are his reassurance to them that they will have all they need for the road ahead. All they need. So in verses 18 and 20, if you look down with me, Jesus makes reference uh, probably to the resurrection here. So he talks about not leaving his disciples as orphans. Though he is going to death, they will see him again. Verse 19, he will be up from the grave. But it's not just the resurrection 
that will strengthen these disciples. It's not even the biggest focus in what Jesus says here. Rather, he focuses on what he's going to leave them as a profound gift. Look at verse 19 with me. I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of Truth. Or in verse 26, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Now the Bible teaches that God is a unity of three persons. One being three persons. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And Jesus is saying that the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, will be given to these disciples as a gift from Jesus forever. Forever. Now this spirit is described in the passage as an advocate or in some translations a helper or a counsellor. Um, and the word used there kind of gives this general meaning of someone who gives aid or help in a time of need. And Jesus describes the spirit as another advocate. So just as Jesus has been with them and has given them aid and help and strengthened them, um, so the spirit in Jesus' physical absence is going to fulfil that work in his stead. So the spirit will strengthen them when they are weak. He will help them to fulfil their calling as Jesus' disciples. Now, Let's be clear that there is no indication in this passage that getting the spirit is kind of like second best. Okay, it's not like that time when you go to the hairdressers and you expect to see your hairdresser there to cut your hair, but then you, you go there and they, they sort of say, oh, um, I thought my assistant could cut your hair today. Is that okay? Now, if you're British, you will say, yeah, that's fine. But inside you will not be okay about that because you've got a trusted person who cuts your hair. Uh, well, I do anyway. And you don't want anyone else other than the designated person who you trust to do that job. An assistant might be a poor substitute. But the Holy Spirit is not a poor substitute for Jesus. In fact, as we read into the details of this passage, we see that through the Spirit, these disciples will have a far richer experience spiritually than they will have had before, even when Jesus was physically present with them. Now, how can that be the case? Verse 17, it says the spirit lives with you and will be in you. So Jesus will send his Holy Spirit to take up residence in the heart of his disciples. In a, in a mysterious way, the Holy Spirit will live in each of the disciples. And it says that through the spirit living in them, these disciples will have access to Jesus and to his father. Look down at me, down with me at verse 21. The one who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love them and show myself to them. So Jesus's physical absence doesn't mean that he won't be able to show himself to his disciples. Receiving the Holy Spirit doesn't mean receiving less of Jesus. Actually, it means receiving more. Because no longer will the access to Jesus that these disciples have be limited by where they are. Wherever they are, the Spirit will be in them and they will be able to have a connection and a communion with Jesus and his Father. Now this is going to be true of all the disciples after the resurrection and since then it's been true of every disciple of Jesus 
since, including you and me, if you are a follower, follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit taking up residence with a permanent contract in your heart. We have this privilege too. And it is a privilege. It is a privilege. Now, can you imagine if Jesus was physically on earth today? Can you imagine what that would be like? You know, let's assume he's living in Jerusalem. Um, can you imagine trying to get access to him? I mean, first of all, like the flight prices would be astronomical, wouldn't they? Trying to get over to Israel. Um, then, you know, the most famous person in history being there is going to be extremely difficult to have an audience with him. You know, even if you were able to afford the flights over there, imagine the crowds, thousands, perhaps millions of people traveling to try and get near Jesus. Would you be able to get even within 50 meters of him? What are the chances of being able to actually speak to him? And what are the chances of being able to have him speak to you, to comfort you, to reassure you, to strengthen you when things are tough? There wouldn't be a chance, would there? And yet, because Jesus has given his spirit, any Christian anywhere on earth has immediate access to him in such a way that he can reveal more of what he's like to us through the spirit who lives within us. That's part of the Christian experience. We grow in knowledge and love of Jesus and we learn more about how he loves us. Now, this is in accordance with um, the Bible and scripture, um, but the Holy Spirit works within us to to give us that greater sense of Jesus's love. And through the Spirit, Jesus reveals himself to us. Verse 23 is an astonishing, astonishing verse. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Now remember last week we saw that um, there was this incredible promise that Jesus was going to prepare a place for his disciples. So that was a home that awaits us. Here we see that God is making his home in our hearts. He's moving in. Through the Spirit, the Father and the Son have moved into a Christian's heart. They've made a home in us and are determined to reveal themselves to us more and more throughout our Christian lives. What a gift the Holy Spirit is. I mean, what a comfort that would have been for the disciples to have heard this. How could they have ever felt abandoned or troubled knowing this? And it's the same with us. We have this huge privilege of the triune God, Father, Son and Spirit taking up residence in our hearts. You know, Jesus is closer to us than our own skin. You know, you could have been at the Last Supper. You could have been sat there with the disciples. You could have looked across the table and seen Jesus. You could have taken a piece of bread from the same loaf that he's taken his in. You could have made eye contact with him and been there to hear his voice and you would still not have the privilege that you have today as a Christian with the Holy Spirit in you. It's a remarkable privilege. Now I know it's hard to believe but it's true. It's true. We have a greater privilege now than any disciple before the resurrection that we read of in the Gospels. It's a glorious thing. And when we think about what this means for our day-to-day -day life, well, it means so much, doesn't it? But one thing it means is that we can never think or say that we are abandoned. A Christian is never abandoned. A couple of months ago at Grace Church, we hosted an event called NHS on the Inside. And what it was, it was an, 
an event where we interviewed two doctors in our church, Matt and Sophie, about their life working in hospital, what it's like working in medicine, and also particularly what it's like dealing with coronavirus in hospitals. Now, we had an interview with them, and then at the end, there was a live Q&A where people, viewers, could submit their questions and get them answered. And one viewer asked a question that was something like this. What would you say to someone whose relative is in hospital with COVID, but friends and family can't visit so that they'll probably die alone? What would you say to someone? Now, I was hosting this event and I saw this question. I was just like, oh, that's, that's quite a hard question. I'm not sure if I want to ask Matt and Sophie this. The problem was all the questions were submitted on a website that everyone could view. So if I kind of left out the question and didn't answer, and ask it, it would be obvious that I kind of bottled it. So I thought, oh, well, I better ask it. Um, now, I asked the question, and one thing I learned is that one should never underestimate Matt and Sophie Craggs, our uh, resident doctors, because Matt answered clearly and confidently, almost straight away. He said, you know, they are not alone. They are not alone. Their friends and family may not be there with them, but they're not alone because they have doctors and other medical staff who are with them and will be caring for them right until the end. They are not alone. And in a much more profound sense, a Christian is never alone. Even if from one perspective, it may look or feel that way. You know, you may feel like no one understands you or knows what you're going through. You may feel let down by others. You may feel isolated. And those are maybe real and, and genuine feelings, not to devalue them in any way. Your heart may be troubled, but ultimately you are not alone. The Lord Jesus and his Father have made a home in your heart through the Holy Spirit, and they are not going anywhere. They want to love you. They want to reveal more of themselves to you. And look at verse 16. The Spirit is there to help you. You know, when you are weak, the Holy Spirit is there to give you strength. You know, when you when you feel when it's hard to show patience uh, in a relationship with someone with someone who's difficult to get on with, when you're feeling discouraged fighting that one sin that keeps getting you down, when you feel tempted to despair from the sufferings of lockdown, he is there and ready and willing to strengthen you. He's able to bind up your wounds give you power to change and he does all this by pointing you to the unstoppable love of Jesus isn't that amazing isn't that amazing what a privilege now I realize that this may feel at odds with your experience you know and if you're a Christian but God feels miles away not particularly close at the moment maybe a first step for you is just to believe that this is true despite your feelings, believe that it's true and ask Jesus through his spirit that he would reveal yourself, himself to you again. This is the great privilege of life in the spirit. Secondly then, love for the son. Well, we've seen that we're brought into this loving relationship with the father and the son through the spirit, where the father and the son, they want to communicate their love to us. But, you know, any healthy relationship is never one-sided, is it? It always takes two to tango. And this passage shows us that when Jesus is in a relationship with one of his disciples, love goes in both directions. There's a mutuality 
to that relationship. Jesus shows his love to the Christian, but the Christian expresses his or her love to Jesus. And what does that look like? Well, Jesus is super clear in this passage. It's keeping Jesus's commands. Now, the passage bends over backwards to make this point. Just look at a few references with me. Verse 15, if you love me, keep my commands. Verse 21, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Verse 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Now, I'm getting married next month and um, married couples will sometimes go through marriage preparation classes and that's something that, that um, myself and my fiance have been going through. And conversations sometimes arise around love languages. Now, if you've not heard of love languages, this concept has been popularized by a guy called Dr. Gary Chapman in the US. And a love language is a way of communicating love to another person. Now, a number of different love languages have been identified. So acts of service would be one, doing things to serve your partner, gifts, um, physical touch, like a hug or a hand on the shoulder, or spending quality time. Um, and words of affirmation is another one as well. Now, most people enjoy all of those things, but the idea is that for every person, there will be one of those that is particularly effective uh, in making them feel loved. And so if you want to express love in the way that will be felt most powerfully, the idea is that you learn what their love language is. Because the danger is that say in a relationship, each partner has two different love languages. So one may be communicating what they think is a real lavish expression of love, but it's not being felt that way by the other person. So in a kind of, I don't know, a stereotypical marriage, you might have a husband who loves gifts. And so every day he's buying loads of flowers. He likes spending loads of money um, on jewelry and other such gifts. And he thinks that's him being super romantic. But his wife, that's not her love language primarily. Uh, it's actually acts of service. So the gifts are not as significant to her as the husband thinks they are. So she might be like, you know, point of feedback. Uh, thanks for the flowers but you've not cooked dinner in about two months. So, you know, raise your game. So love languages. Now I'm not suggesting the divine son of God has a love language that would seem inappropriate at best, but it is important that we know how to express love for Jesus. And in his own words, clear as day, it's doing what he says, it's obedience. After all, he's the Lord, isn't he? He's our king. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. And if we love him, of course, we will want to obey him. And he's not doing anything. He's not asking us to do anything that he hasn't done himself. At the end of the passage, he says that he loves his father and he does all that his father commands him. And if Jesus is king, surely we'll obey him if we want to love him. Now, the danger is that we may have misunderstood what love for Jesus looks like. We may think that loving Jesus is expressed primarily in warm or positive feelings. Feelings. Now, don't get me wrong, feelings are not bad. Actually, they're very important. Um, Jesus should capture our hearts. The gospel should stir our affections. We are actually to have joy in the Lord, and that's a command. That's something that the Bible thinks is very important, and something is wrong 
um, if that's not the case, if there's no joy, if there's no affection in our hearts towards Jesus. But feelings are not enough. What goes on in our hearts should result in actions. So if we really know who Jesus is and if we really love him, then we will keep his commands. We'll keep his commands. Now we do have to be careful here because a cursory reading of a verse like verse 21 um, might make us think that God's love for us is in some way a reward for our obedience, like a transaction is happening. But it's not quite like that. You know, we don't gain acceptance with God because we are good little boys and girls who have earned his favour. That's not the case at all. We know from John's gospel that's not the case. The initiative to bring us into this relationship with God is God's alone. He makes the first move. You see, we don't need rewarding. We are sinners by nature. We need saving. So Jesus is not striking a deal here with us. Rather, he's just showing us what that relationship will look like. If you're in a relationship with Jesus, he will manifest his love to you with his father and you will obey him. That's just what it looks like. That's just how it is. Of course, our obedience won't be perfect, um, but it will be there and the desire will be there and that desire will result in action. Now, I'm conscious that Jesus's words in this passage are not meant here primarily to challenge us, but to comfort us. He was trying to comfort his disciples. He talks about wanting to give them his peace. He doesn't want them to be troubled. So he's not trying to make them feel guilty about a lack of obedience. And so for disciples of Jesus today, for us, our primary takeaway from this passage is to feel encouraged and not browbeaten for not being obedient enough. That said, it is worth reflecting. Is your love for Jesus expressed by obedience? Do you have his commands and do you keep them? Now, of course, we all fail at this to some degree. We're not without sin in this life. But I wonder if there are certain categories of obedience that we neglect whilst leaning in towards others. Let me explain what I mean. So some people, when they think of obedience to Jesus, they think primarily in terms of what they might call personal morality, the things to do with me. So these are the sorts of people who will take great care to be honest, to be careful in what they watch and listen to, the kind of media they consume. They're the sorts of people who will never swear. They're the sorts of people who will take Jesus's words about lustful looks being adultery or anger being like murder very, very seriously. After all, this is what obedience looks like. It's personal morality. But when it comes to matters relating to other people or to the society at large, things like being generous towards other people, having mercy on the poor, seeking justice in our community, or even being zealous for sharing the good news with other people, well, that might not be as high up the agenda. Although both sets of categories are linked in Jesus's very commands. And the same might be true vice versa. Someone may take Jesus's command to love their neighbor extremely seriously. They may commit themselves to political activism. They may spend lots of time with um, people of all sorts 
of backgrounds, um, Christians and non-Christians, they may show hospitality, they may give to charities. But when it comes to Jesus's demands for their personal lives, well, that may not be as much of a priority. Now, we all have blind spots. So at this point, it is good to reflect, isn't it? Now, again, this passage is not meant to guilt trip us. And if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, then you will love him and you will keep his commands, however imperfectly that may be. The desire will be there and it will result in action. But who knows? Perhaps this morning the Holy Spirit, who lives within you and is strengthening you to be more of a, a consistent follower of Jesus, might, he might be giving you a prod this morning. He might be pointing out some blind spots, making you think about areas where your obedience isn't as consistent as it could be. And maybe he will help you to obey Jesus that little bit better. You know, friends, it's a glorious thing to obey Jesus. It's a wonderful thing. And by keeping his commands, we demonstrate that we have love for him. And isn't he worth that? He's worth that, isn't he? Definitely. Definitely. Okay, love for the sun. Well, finally then, lessons for the world. Well, this relationship of mutual love we've seen between a human being and his or her God is a beautiful thing, isn't it? Love going in both directions. Who wouldn't want to be a part of that? But there is a sad undercurrent that goes through this passage, a sad truth, which is that not everyone experiences this. See, Jesus repeatedly in this chapter refers to the world. And the term world is not a neutral term. Rather, it refers to humanity in its innate hostility and rebellion against God and his rule. So the Bible teaches that we all naturally turn away from God. We don't um, want his vision for our lives. We don't want to do as he has told us, even though he is our loving creator who has the right to set the rules for us, uh, set the terms. Uh, but we want to follow our own path and we turn away from a loving God um, who's given us so many good things. So we're all naturally part of the world. And anyone who isn't a disciple of Jesus is part of the world still. Now look at how Jesus uses this term in this passage. Verse 16 and 17. He mentions he's going to send the spirit to the disciples. But the world cannot accept the spirit. Because it neither sees him or knows him. So it's like there's a spiritual blindfold over people that prevents um, someone who's not a follower of Jesus, from being able to see or even understand who the Spirit is. When Jesus says to the disciples that through the Spirit he will show himself to them, Judas, who is not the Judas who will betray Jesus, a different Judas, he has a question, verse 22, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus' answer at first glance seems strange. He, he sort of repeats what he's already said. Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching and so on. The key phrase is in verse 24. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. Jesus' point is this. There can be no relationship with Jesus if you don't accept his teaching. There can be no relationship with Jesus if you don't accept what he says. And the rubber hits the road here when we think about our attitude 
to the Bible because the Bible is Jesus' teaching codified, written down. In fact, in verses 25 and 26, we have this promise that the Holy Spirit is going to remind the disciples of all Jesus' teaching once he is gone. He's going to bring it to mind. And these are foundational verses for the way we think about the Bible, the New Testament, the, this very gospel, that they are authoritative words that have been inspired by God himself, the Holy Spirit. So our attitude to the Bible is crucial because they're the words of Jesus. This is where his teaching is to be found. Now, R.C. Sproul was a fabulous Bible teacher and pastor in the U.S. He died in 2017 after a lifelong um, faithful service in ministry. And he tells the story of once being engaged in a discussion with a university, a Christian university on the west coast of America, about their view of the Bible. Is it authoritative? Is it really the word of God or not? And he says that the dean of, inst of the institution said to him, R.C., look, why are you so bothered about the authority of the Bible? What difference does it make to you? And R.C. said in response, are you kidding? If you take away the word, you take away my life. I have nothing left because this is the word of Christ. If you take away the word, that is the Bible, you take him away. Do you see the point? To know Jesus, we must accept his teaching. And anyone who doesn't, according to Jesus, is of the world. And so this doesn't just mean your stereotypical hardened atheist. It could be someone who says that they love Jesus, but just does not take the scripture seriously. The same worldly perspective is there. And so Jesus in this passage, he draws a, a sharp contrast a sharp distinction. You are either a disciple of his or you are in the world. You are either caught up in that glorious relationship of love or you are outside of that in the world. And you are either one or the other. There is no overlap. There might as well be a universe between those two positions. So we have a problem here, don't we? Because if the world can not only accept Jesus' teaching, it cannot accept the Holy Spirit. It just seems locked out from the beginning. It neither sees the Spirit or knows him. So what hope can there be? How can anyone from the world possibly be a disciple, possibly experience that love relationship with the triune God? Well, just as we finish, there is a glimmer of hope right at the end of this passage. Look at verse 30 with me. So in verse 30, Jesus says that the prince of the world is coming. Now, this is a reference to his impending betrayal and death on the cross. The prince of the world is a reference to a spiritual being called Satan, um, someone who is bent on opposing Jesus and his plan. Satan will no doubt rejoice at Jesus being killed. And Jesus will go on to be crucified, and it will all appear tragic, except verse 31. He comes, Jesus says, so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. So Jesus has so far said that the world is blind and cannot see the Spirit, 
and indeed cannot see Jesus truly. And yet there is still a lesson that the world can learn. There is still a way in. People of the world may still see the truth about who Jesus is, but it will take his death to achieve it. It turns out people in this world can still enter into this loving relationship with the God who made them. But the way in will be as they hear about the death and resurrection of Jesus and how that expresses his love for his father. Through that message, as it is preached, as it is testified by Christians, the blind can see, the lost can be found, and those who were previously hostile to God supernaturally can be brought to life and brought into that beautiful relationship of love with Jesus. So there is hope for those in the world. And that should spur us on, shouldn't it? Firstly, it should spur us to pray. We should be praying for those who we know who do not know Jesus, that they may come to know him through a supernatural work. And it should Encourage us to speak boldly, shouldn't it? To speak of the cross, to speak of the gospel that is shown in the cross and the empty tomb. So that those who are in the world may hear. And who knows, perhaps they will um, turn and see Jesus in all his glory. And brought into that love um, that God offers. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we are so grateful that as Christians, through your Holy Spirit, you and your Son, Jesus, live in our hearts. That we have you closer than any other thing in this world and that you want to strengthen us by your Spirit and you want to reveal more of yourself and your love to us. Lord, help us to express our love to you and to Jesus by greater and greater obedience. Please show us, Lord, where we are not obeying you. Um, and help us to be more and more consistent. And may your Holy Spirit give us strength um, to do that well. We thank you, Lord, that we can never say that we're abandoned, that you're always with us. And Lord, we just pray for boldness, to pray boldly and to speak boldly of the cross of the Lord Jesus. And we pray that we would see those in the world coming from death to life and experiencing that loving relationship that you offer in the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.